Hello and welcome to this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. November is National Hospice Month and today we're really happy to welcome volunteers and staff of Hospice of the Bluegrass. And we have three wonderful women here with us today. One is Linda Eversoll. Hi, Linda. Hi, nice to be here. And Monica Couch. Hey, thanks for having us. Uh-huh. And Leanne Hughes. Hello, thank you for having us. I believe that this subject, hospice care, is an extremely important one to talk about at any point in time. Over the last couple of years, I have lost three of my family members, and one of them passed away at the Hazard Hospice. That experience was a huge eye-opener for me as I start to prepare to take care of my parents, seeing what kind of help we might require and where we want to be when end-of-life care occurs. Let's talk a little bit about the history of hospice care. What is it? How did it get started? How did that word come to be, hospice? Well, hospice is, by its very origin, something that was started by volunteers. People looked at the way that people were dying and saw that there had to be something different. Because what was really happening is so many people were in hospital settings And while our hospitals are an amazing part of what we do and hospitals are great for what they do, they're built for acute care. They're not built for what happens, all the emotional parts, all the physiological parts that happen when a person begins the dying process. A lot of nurses, a lot of people who were in a chaplain field looked at the way that people were dying and said there has to be something that we can do. And so hospice was born and it was born out of this need for people to have options. And so that's still one of the things that we are really big on and is part of our philosophy today is giving people options of, you know, hospice may not be right for every single person, but for those people who say, I am tired of maybe doing all of this curative care. I maybe don't want to do IVs. I maybe don't want to do treatments anymore. I maybe don't want to go through subjecting myself to all these things that would happen to me in a traditional clinical get better setting maybe they say you know what I just want to be comfortable and I would like to be at home with my family that is when hospice can really shine because what our goal at hospice is to allow people to stay at home with their family with their pets in their bed providing the very best care that we can and we do that through a team approach So we have all these professionals who will go to where the patient resides, help them manage their care so that they are, in fact, able to stay at home with the very best in care actually coming to them so that they're not actually having to go to the doctor. All the people who need to be involved in their care will come to them. just makes it a lot more simplified for people who desire to be at home during this last few months of life. They can still get the medicines that they need to keep them comfortable and any type of treatment that would come about. Because I know a lot of people, that's one of the things that they worry about is pain if they go home or what that will feel like, especially family members. What am I going to see? So is that something that they 
are still allowed to have at home? Yes, absolutely they can. We specialize in pain and symptom management, and we do work with them to keep their pain under control, keep their symptoms under control. We have, as Linda was saying, a board-certified palliative care physician, Dr. Wendy Latunek. She really specializes in being able to keep symptoms under control for our patients while they're at home. And palliative care, that's a word that I didn't know exactly what it meant until I did have my first family member start to pass away and they switched them at the hospital we were at at the time to the palliative care unit. We all wondered, what is that? And then we realized, oh, it must mean that they're not expecting things to improve. Is that what that means? Well, palliative care and hospice care kind of goes hand in hand. With palliative care, it's not a situation where you have to be facing the last few months of your life. Anyone with any serious illness can have palliative care. Hospice care is a little bit more advanced in the fact that we come to your home, we work with you, we work with your family, we can help provide the medical equipment, the medications, the support from the chaplains. We can do all of that in your home whereas palliative care is a little bit different, but they do go hand in hand. A lot of the services are the same. The hospice is just a little bit more advanced towards caring for someone who is facing end of life, who's not seeking those aggressive treatments, and is focused more on quality of life. Another question that I have is, I know for my grandmother, she passed at the hospice center in Hazard, mm -hmm. so she was not at home. What is the difference between the home care and the care at the actual hospice center? Hospice is provided on different levels of care and depending on where the patient is in their disease or what symptoms they're having or what's going on with them, that will determine what level of care that they need to be in. So if you are in the, the inpatient facility in Hazard, it would probably be for symptom management or a respite level of care. We have the general inpatient level of care, routine home care. So we have four levels of care. So it's based on where they fall into. So if you need more extensive round-the-clock nursing care, then you probably would need the general inpatient level of care. That's generally for a short amount of time to help try to manage symptoms, nausea, vomiting, pain. Respite is if family needs to, something comes up and they need to leave town, there's not another plan in place so that you know somebody needs to go to a wedding or to a funeral out of town and there's no other caregiver those are types of things that the respite would be there for routine home care is the majority of the level of care that we provide and that can be done in the home in the nursing home uh, wherever that person considers their home to be and we would go in and manage that with our team linda talked about our team a little bit but we have a, a full team that in any of our settings that are involved. You have the social workers, the nurses, the chaplains, certified nurse aides, the physician, all those members of the team, the pharmacists. So we have a huge team that's involved in that care. So the routine home care is the biggest amount of our services that we provide are provided under the routine home care level. And again, that can be in the home or in the nursing home, wherever their home is. We've had patients who their home is at the homeless shelter. So wherever that home is to that person's where we provide that level of care. So that's a pretty extensive reach there. I see Linda's badge says volunteer coordinator. So I'm wondering what is the level of activity of volunteers? How many of them do you need? What do they do? What type of person volunteers for end-of-life care? 
Those are really great questions, and I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> With our volunteers, basically, we can use volunteers for many different parts of the process. Basically, we use volunteers from everything from the very emotional sitting with a patient who is actively dying and may not have a loved one to be with them. Part of our philosophy is that we don't want patients to die alone. So if we have a patient that is alone and has no one, we have volunteers that do nothing else for us except sit with those patients so that they don't have to go through this process alone. We have everything from that to someone who makes quilts in their home and donates those to hospice patients. You wouldn't think of the emotional level that come with something as simple as a blanket that has been made for a patient, but we have families that are so grateful that someone has taken the time to make something for them to use. It could be something as simple as a pillow or a comfort item, an adult apron, those kinds of things that might be so simple to someone else. I think sometimes people undervalue their own skills and talents. So if someone is a good singer, then we probably have a patient who would love to have someone come sing for them. So we have volunteers who do that. We don't really have a, a particular dynamic of what our volunteers look like. Every volunteer is different. We have volunteers of every age and every socioeconomic group. We have a lady here today with us who is actually, after this appointment, Miss Linda Dunn is actually going to do a haircut for a patient. And you just wouldn't think about how important a haircut is. But when you need one and are not able to go to the shop to get that, and someone comes to your house and makes you feel better, wow, what a gift. Just would encourage people to realize that maybe you say, well, patient care is not something that I could do or would really want to do. Well, that's okay because we probably have a different opportunity for you. You know, work in the office, help us answer phones. We just have so many different opportunities that we need volunteers for. And one of the most important parts that we are really always seeking volunteers is for home respite. And that just basically means that you would go, maybe it's your neighbor who's sick. We try to keep people in local areas of where they live, but, you know, if you're willing to go further, we will definitely take your help. Let's say your neighbor is on hospice care, and the caregiver just needs to go to the grocery store or go to the bank once a week. Then we could have you trained and go through the screening process, and you could actually be able to sit with your neighbor while that caregiver takes a break. And maybe they go read a book, or maybe they go to the store, Whatever it is that they need at that moment is what we try to do for our patients. And our volunteers are not just people off the street. They're trained, they're screened, and they go through annual educations to make sure that we're all on the same page so that everybody knows the newest techniques and things that we're requiring. And it's not just that we'll pick anybody out and send them. There's a whole process that goes with this. And so it is for the comfort of the families. We're taking care of those families just as if they were our very own family. Our volunteers are an integral part of everything that we do at hospice. We cannot do what we need to our, for our patients without volunteers. I think it's really important, too, to remember that volunteer means unpaid. So you're getting someone who has said, I will take my time to do this. And usually those are the most dedicated people. Absolutely. Plus the training that you provide. You're not getting someone who is just sitting there for a dollar. You're getting yeah. someone who really wants to, to be, be there. there. Exactly. And I think that's a tremendous service. 
is huge. And I think our patients can feel that. We are required, um, Medicare and Medicaid require us to have volunteers, but I think what makes our volunteers so integral is that no matter how sick people are, they can tell. When I train our volunteers, I always say, if you're having a bad day, it's okay to just be real because you can't tell me that there's a single patient who hasn't had a bad day. People can feel it no matter how sick they are. They can feel the sincerity that comes with that. And so often you'll go to see a patient and they'll be like, well, would you pray with me before you leave? And, you know, we're like, we're the volunteers. We're not, you know, we're not here to pray for you. But they're like, well, they want everybody to pray before they leave, you know. So you just do whatever you can for that patient in that moment. I kind of use my illustration of if you go to a restaurant and you drive through and you order something and you get in the car and you look in your bag and then it's not what you ordered and you're all frustrated because you're like, I didn't need that. That's not what I wanted. So with our volunteers, we always, you know, tell our volunteers, whatever it is that they need in that moment, it's not what we want them to have. If they're ordering a burger, then we need to be delivering a burger. If that's what we can do, you know, in that moment, whatever it is that we can do for those patients, we try to do within what we can do reasonably. I think one of the big eye-openers for me, especially in the process of my grandmother's passing, was just what it means to be a caregiver of someone who isn't going to get better. Watching my mother do that for her mother was a big deal. And there was one point when she looked at me and said, if I'd wanted to become a nurse, I would have went to school to be one. And that's the moment when I knew that the stress was too much. So you see small things like being able to sleep enough, getting food at the right times, having a conversation that isn't about this illness. Things like that become so very important. Not only that, but one of the things that was a tremendous relief to us when my grandmother was moved from the hospital to the hospice center was she froze all the time at the hospital and the blankets they give you are so thin and we would bring blankets from home but that just wasn't enough. The first thing she said when she got there was there's a quilt on the bed and she said don't let them take me from here. Wow. And she at all costs wanted to stay. I want to stay here. I want to stay here. We knew at that point that she was comfortable and my mother was able to sleep mm -hmm. for the first time in months. That was just a huge gift because we weren't able to be present for each other because we were just so tired. So being able to regain a little composure and be there for her the way that we should have been was really, really important. And getting to be the family. Yeah. And that, that happens so often. It's so hard to to be the family because you're caring for your loved one and sometimes you get so exhausted emotionally and physically with the whole illness that you're like, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep doing this? And with hospice, we want to treat every family, every patient as a unit. We need to find out what's going on with the caregivers. If the caregivers are not able to care for their loved one, then we got to figure out what we're going to do. If you're not able to do that, how can we help? Are, are there other options? Let us help you kind of work through some of those options that may be available that you may not have thought about. It, it is very taxing, and you want to be there. And some people do want to do every single thing for their loved one, and it's so very unique. Every situation is so unique, and so we try to work with each patient and their family 
to figure out what's important to you now and how can we make this a priority. And providing that support system, I think, is a huge piece, is providing that support system so the daughter can be the daughter and the patient can be the patient and we can help on both sides. We like to tell people that hospice is 50% about the patient and 50% about the family because, like Monica said, we want to look at them as a whole unit and we want to help everyone involved in the patient's care and give them the support they need to meet their goals for their last days and if we're not able to provide something that's needed we're going to say that we can't do this here's your options a lot of what our staff do is education to how to care for somebody how to turn them you know how to call the right person at the right time any of those things that sometimes we as healthcare professionals take for granted because it's part of our everyday language you know sometimes we forget that we've got to help people through this because this is new to them for the most part and just having that support and knowing that somebody's there that you can call and ask questions or that the nurse is going to come by whenever I need them to come by to check on us, that the social worker is going to help me with financial things or uh, emotional, spiritual things from the chaplain. So there's lots of different things that can be provided because it's not just about that illness. There's so many dynamics around having somebody that's very sick that need to be addressed in order for everybody to be comfortable. I wonder if it's just a thing around here, a mountain thing, or if it's something that goes beyond place. But I know a lot of the older people that I've spoken to, or my grandparents and friends' grandparents, were really adamant about being at home and being cared for by their family, or at least by someone who they recognized their name. Mm -hmm. That was so important to all of them. And my sister, she's a home health nurse, so she does some end-of-life care too. And she said there was one old man, she's in Louisville, and he's from here. And he was so excited. He said, I wish I could tell my dad that even all the way here in Louisville, I still got me a good hillbilly woman to take care of me. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and she was pleased please this punch with that but <laughs> and a lot of times what happens when you go into a home the first thing people want to know is where you're from and mm -hmm. who's your family who's your family <laughs> who's your people <laughs> yeah are you from around here or and that's okay you know we you know we try to just be there and because we know that's important and you know you're having people come into your home you want to know who they are mm -hmm. especially in those vulnerable moments when you don't know what's going to happen what it's going to be like I think at least a little familiarity is a good thing absolutely, uh, for them to have. Being able to be there and, and understand the culture and understand where people may be coming from allows us to be able to provide a better level of care. Do any of the staff or volunteers act as a liaison between health care providers and the family? Our case managers, our nurses are considered our case managers in the hospice team. And that's one of the things that is a huge part of their job is coordinating care between whoever the physician may be, any type of external providers, working with equipment company, working with whoever needs to be involved in that care and coordinating the care between, you know, if it's somebody needs to go to the hospital, been to the hospital, all of those communication pieces are very important through the entire process and keeping everybody 
the patient comes to us, they don't have to use our physician. They can use their physician that they've had for years. That's the person who knows them the best, and we want them to use that person because that physician's going to be able to provide us much better information about what's happened with this patient. You know, they know this patient intimately because they've dealt with their medical conditions for years. And so we have physicians that are available, but we want those community physicians to be involved because they're, they're so valuable in the care that, that's provided. I know for my grandmother, passing away was a process. When a person is accepted into hospice care, what type of care do they begin with? At what point does it happen and what levels does it go through? To become a hospice patient, generally we get a referral from somebody. That can be a physician, it can be a family member, it can be somebody who just knows the family may call and say, we think you may be able to help this person. So once we get that information or that name, then we have a process that we will go through. We're not just going to pick up the phone because the neighbor called and said you need hospice. Then we're going to try to get some more information to figure out who's the physician. Can we call and find out is this really something that we need to pursue or not? But our referrals can come from anywhere, and we're going to work to do our best to get to the persons that need us. Once you come to hospice through referral source of whatever nature that is, there's four different levels of hospice care that's provided. We have routine home care, which is the bulk of the care that we provide is provided in the home, wherever the person chooses their home to be. In their home that they've lived in all their life, it can be in a nursing home, it could be in a homeless shelter, it could be wherever they call home. That's where we're going to provide that level of care. We also have general inpatient level of care, which is care that's provided in a hospital setting or in our inpatient facility in Hazard, the Greg and Noreen Wells Hospice Care Center. That level of care is provided there. We also have respite level of care. When situations come up when somebody may need to leave town, the caregiver needs to go out of town for a funeral, those types of things, then we are able to provide up to five days of respite for the patient so that the family or caregiver can go and attend to whatever they need to go attend to. Then we also have continuous home care. That level of care is provided when there's symptom management issues going on that needs a nurse to be there frequently, more than just a time or two a day. Generally, continuous care is provided at least, it has to be provided at least eight hours in a 24-hour period, but up to 24 hours in a 24-hour period, depending on what's going on with that person. So if it requires some skilled nursing monitoring and adjustment, then that may be a level that'll be provided at that time. As my grandmother was passing, there would be times when she would not appear to be lucid, but she would still be talking. She would get sometimes agitated, see things that weren't there. If a family member becomes nervous when those sorts of things start happening, do you provide someone to be with them so that they can still support? Again, you know, we have volunteers that can help with some of those things. We have 11th hour volunteers who can provide some sitting with families if it's in that transitional phase, if they just need the support, if it's more medical that the nurse needs to be there to adjust medicines or to help manage symptoms. Then we have the continuous home care. Sometimes it's just having somebody say, okay, this is happening. What does that mean? somebody being there to say, okay, this is to be expected. We have lots of 
literature. We have lots of resources that we give families. We try to prepare families for what they may see, family, friends, loved ones for what they may see based on if this illness goes along like we normally see, then you may see some of these signs and symptoms. If you see this, this is why you're seeing this. These are some of the things that we can do. Sometimes knowing up front that you may see those things helps to be able to deal with it. When my grandfather was dying, my mother was one of his main caregivers. And to this day, this has been eight years ago, she will still say to me, that booklet that you gave me was the best piece of information that you could have ever given me. And it was what we call our signs and symptoms. And it talked about things that you may see and things that you can do. So when my grandmother was dying, the question was, where's my information? And everybody's different. Some people can't look at those pieces of information. It really is very geared to what you need at that time. So the entire team will work with patients and their families to determine what it is that we need to provide at this time. Do we provide the booklet? Do we just talk about it? Or is it something that we need to put down for a little bit because we're not ready for that yet? So it is very individualized care based on what's going on in the entire unit of care. And I think another good thing to remember is the grieving process begins sometimes long before the person passes away. At some point you may feel very done and at other points not quite yet and one day you may be able to do something the next day you find you can't. It's almost like a roller coaster of emotion depending on how the day's going. I know that for sure. This is the Cole Week in Review. As reported by the Wattsburg Mountain Eagle, the Ohio Valley Resource, other area newspapers, and internet sources. Despite a current oversupply of coal in the power sector, China's government says that by 2020, they will raise the coal-fired power capacity of the country by 20%. The 200-gigawatt increase over the next four years that the plan entails is more than the total power capacity of Canada. After the new five-year plan for electricity was released on Monday, the National Energy Administration said to the Chinese reporters that the government was committed to reducing coal's dominance in the energy mix and that they reserved the right to slow down coal project approvals or construction if necessary. Under this plan, coal would still produce about 55% of China's total energy capacity. China's oversupply of coal has resulted in less imports into the country of the commodity, playing a part in driving down prices worldwide. The findings in the new West Virginia Economic Outlook for 2017-2021, to released by West Virginia University's Bureau of Business and Economic Research, shows that the economic forecast for West Virginia over the next five years is more of the same a lethargic coal industry, population decreases, and a stagnant jobless rate compared to the national average. 
Output of coal is expected to stabilize slowly and rebound slightly in 2017, the report states, rising to approximately 70 million short tons from the 68 million short tons expected from 2016. More than 50 coal companies have sought bankruptcy protection over the last few years, and those who own assets in West Virginia will play a critical role in any rebound coal may see, however small. This depends upon international demand for coal increasing and weather that supports the prediction that the utility companies will run through their stockpiles. This hope for increased need for thermal coal is in spite of the United Nations Paris Agreement signed by 195 countries who will participate in reducing emissions as a means to keep global temperature rise this century well below 2 degrees Celsius and to drive efforts to limit the temperature increase even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The economic outlook also says that 36 of West Virginia's counties will continue to see a population decline and that the jobless rate, being one of the lowest in the country, is not expected to change. A class action lawsuit was filed against world-renowned Johns Hopkins Hospital and several radiologists who were part of a unit led by Dr. Paul Wheeler by the families of two coal miners who died of black lung disease. The lawsuit draws heavily from revelations in an investigative report by the Center for Public Integrity in partnership with ABC News that found the unit for decades provided coal companies x-ray readings that almost always said the miner didn't have black lung, helping the companies avoid paying benefits under a program administered by the federal government. The allegations against John Hopkins and Wheeler in the complaint include fraud, unjust enrichment, and violation of the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, the federal law best known as a tool used against organized crime. Johns Hopkins and Wheeler, quote, have engaged in a pattern and practice with the intent to defraud at least hundreds of toxically injured coal miners of federally earned benefits, end quote, the lawsuit alleges. The case alleges hundreds of miners have been defrauded out of health and compensation benefits. The International Institute for Sustainable Development in Winnipeg, Canada, has released a report stating that the coal industry is gearing up for automation. In the next decade, the mining industry may lose more than half of its jobs to automation, the report states. The industry is adopting self-driving trucks, automated loaders, and automated drilling and tunnel boring systems. It is also testing fully autonomous long-distance trains, which carry materials from the mine to a port. Most affected will be miners in the lesser skilled trades, including heavy equipment operators, drivers, and maintainers. This will increase demand for people with IT skills who can set up and operate the automation systems, but at far smaller numbers than the people automation displaces. Local communities dependent upon mining employment will be hard hit. And that is the Coal Week in Review. For WMMT, this is Kelly Haywood. Easy rider,
listening to Mountain Talk Monday. I am your host, Kelly Haywood. Today I'm here with Hospice of the Bluegrass and Linda Eversoll, Monica Couch, and Leanne Hughes are joining us to talk about what services are offered in our area, how you can volunteer, and some of the interesting projects that are going to be coming around pretty soon. At that, I would like to talk a little bit about one thing that we seem to not talk about enough in my mind is passing away. We all anticipate the birth of a baby. We all anticipate marriage. Things that we consider a milestone. And one of the things that I definitely realized in sitting with family members who were passing away is that death is also a milestone. And it doesn't have to be as scary as we imagine it to be. And I think one of the reasons that so many imagine it to be such a scary thing is that we don't talk about it. We don't see it until it's time to be with someone we're very close to as they're passing. That shouldn't be the first time that we've had that discussion. As someone who has attended many births and seen lots of babies come in, it's honestly a kind of a similar process. So how do we have these types of conversations with people? You bring up a, a great point. I agree with you totally that the life and birth and when somebody's dying are very similar. They're very intimate times in, in life that generally your friends and closest family and loved ones are there. And we don't talk about it. I think a lot of, of times death is so hard to think about that emotionally we're not ready to talk about it until you have to and then sometimes when you get to that point where you have to talk about it it's probably not the right time because you're so overly emotional and it's hard to think and it's hard to keep your mind wrapped around what's really going on it does help to know ahead of time what people want it, it helps to have those conversations how many people can say that my husband or my wife or my mom or my dad know what I want when I die. Or if I'm very, very sick, they know what I want. Do I want life support? Do I not want life support? We don't have those conversations. And when it comes down to it, what happens is the family members have the burden of trying to figure out what I would want or what you would want. Mm -hmm. And to me, we need to have those conversations ahead of time so that when something does happen, you can be there as a family, you can be there as friends, as loved ones, and not be so burdened by trying to make a decision that you're not sure is the right decision. Based on, we never had a conversation. How do I make this decision? Because I don't know what they wanted. So we, we do need to have those conversations. If I can add, when you are in a crisis, or when I am in a crisis, that is not when my brain is thinking the most clearly. That's what Monica's saying. When you are in a crisis moment, you're just trying to get through that moment. Um, but when you have had the opportunity to have this conversation, like for me, when my mother and I had this conversation, I will never forget it because we were in the swimming pool. And we were having this conversation because I work at hospice and because we needed to talk about it. And I will never forget what she told me. And so we laughed and we joked. And God forbid if I ever am in that situation, now I have the peace of knowing exactly what she told me that I will be able to recall and replay back and share with my family, well, we had this conversation and that's how I know. 
that this is what she would want. You don't want to wait until crisis. And that's one of the things that we hear the most often from families, even families that choose hospice, is I wish we had called hospice sooner. Because what happens then is they've waited until the person is so sick that they're not able to actually get all of the great benefits that we can do for those patients to help them be more comfortable, to help them not live in pain, to help them work through some of these emotional issues, to work through some of these spiritual issues. Spiritual issues can cause real physical pain. I don't want to sound boastful, but we have experts who are trained in how to help you work through these things. I just think that's one of the most amazing parts of the hospice service is that you have this whole group of people who are so attuned to listen to you, to what it is that you need. And I'm so impressed with our staff when I travel with them, our clinical staff, to get to hear them and get to see them, how they listen to our patients. Because it truly is about what does this patient need in this moment and how are we able to help them. It's just very individualized. It's just a wonderful thing to see it all happen the way it is supposed to work. One of the questions that our clinical staff always are instructed to ask, it's on all of our medical forms when we're doing assessments, is what's most important to you now? That I mean, that's so the center of what, what we need to be focused on. What's important to you? It doesn't matter what's important to me or to Linda or to Kelly. It's what's important to the patient, what's important to the family. That's what we need to know because if we don't know that, then we can't help. In regards to spiritual matters, do you offer chaplain services to all faiths, or is it interfaith? Our chaplains are non-denominational. We do look at the spiritual needs of that person. If it's something that we can provide, we will do that. If not, we reach out to local pastors, local clergy. We want people to continue with the clergy or the pastor or whoever they've been involved with. We want that to still be there. We'll be an added benefit, an added service, and an added support to what they're already getting. If it's something that we're not familiar with, we're going to go research it, and we're going to do our best to provide. And sometimes spirituality comes in many, many different forms. Mm -hmm. You know, it may not be about a religion. Spirituality may be about art how you know what what do I find that's spiritual to me and so we have to figure that piece out before we can meet people where they're at and help them walk that path and that's what we feel that we're experts in doing. One thing I noticed too was with my grandmother someone who was very strong in her faith her whole life until those last few months when she started asking really big questions and questioning herself and we were all surprised that that was happening for her and that she needed that reassurance that she had always given to us that we could then sit with her and tell her what she had told us all the, that time knowing that someone who seemed very steadfast in what they believed could at that moment in time mm -hmm. question everything makes me feel like the spiritual aspect of it is pretty important Let's go back to having the conversation. My great-grandmother was my babysitter. She had good health up until the very end. And it was years that she would take me into her closet and say, this is the dress I want to be buried in. This is the color I want my flowers. <laughs> she would take tape and write our names 
and stick them on the bottom of things so we'll know who got what. She was managing that. <laughs> what, a, what, what a gift. Yeah, what a no, gift. Really Special. Was. What a gift. Because she had done that with several of us. So we were like, yes, that's the dress. So get that. <laughs> you know. And it was a lot simpler, but I know not everyone can do that. And I think one of the things that was really hard for us was my grandmother, when it was her time, had told us she wanted to be at home. But home had grown really uncomfortable for her. And the hospital had grown really uncomfortable for her. And my mom kept stalling, making the decision to send her to the hospice center. And finally, my sister and I told her, I think it's okay to change the plan if the plan's not working. Let's talk just a second about caregiver guilt. When is that appropriate? When is it okay to change the plan? Again, I think we go back to if we've been able to have those discussions, sometimes you've not had the opportunity. You know, sometimes illnesses sneak up on us and we don't know that. That's why having those discussions in the swimming pool or having those discussions wherever, just to, you know, I'm not sick now, so I don't need to talk about it, but yeah, you do. But caregiver guilt, and I understand that we always are going to question, did we do the right thing? You know, those are our loved ones. We want to make sure that every single thing is done correctly, that everything is done right. If you do it out of your heart and you make those decisions based on what you feel is best for that person, you've done the right thing. There's not a certain time or place, I don't think, to sit back and think, do I need to change the plan? I think people knows when that time comes and when they make the decisions for the right reasons. And like Monica said, out of your heart, there's not really a certain time. You couldn't give a time frame on something like that. And I love that you and your sister were close enough to your mother to be able to give her the gift of saying, don't do this to yourself. And I think that's part of the reason it's so important to be involved in the care of our loved ones, more than just one person, because your mom probably was exhausted at that point. And we see this over and over and over with our families. A lot of times, by the time that they get to our center, they are just so tired. But one of the most beautiful things about our care center is that you do have this whole group of experts in this field who are looking at you and saying what you're going through is exactly normal. Mm -hmm. We would not expect to see anything any different. We want you to know we're here to take care of your loved one. But one of the things that families always tell us is they come in, care for our loved ones, and then allow us time to just be with our person. That is something that is rare in a clinical setting, and that's why it's so important for that care center if people are at that point where they're making a decision is home uncomfortable for me is the hospital uncomfortable for me and it's at that point that a person could really consider the care center as being an option because it is such a great place where you're hearing people saying to you this is what to expect this is what we're seeing and they're taking care of you and just like you said originally allowing you to go and allowing your mom to go from having to be the caregiver and the decision maker to somebody who is being a daughter to her mom. And I just think that's so important to be able to have that time mm -hmm. to do that. And another thing that I really noticed was the change in my grandmother. 
at the hospital she was very agitated at home she was very agitated she wasn't sleeping and at the hospital she would just fall asleep and they would come to do a blood pressure check or something like mm -hmm. that and she was so tremendously relieved at the hospice center to actually be able to sleep until she wakes up and I think that gave us more clear moments with her that she was actually able to rest and not have to deal with all the things that really at that point were not necessary. That was a big plus and I think we were all surprised at how well that non-planned thing worked out, <laughs> um, which, which was a huge relief. It was a decision that at that moment it was the only one to make. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that the hospice team is there, those are things that they can help guide families through. This is our plan, but this is not working. What can we do? There's a lot of conversations that can happen. And with the staff who've been through this repeatedly, they can offer some really good insight. They're not going to tell you what to do, but these are some of your options and these are some of the things that we can do, which makes it very helpful. There's not a roadmap for you need to do it this way or do it that way. It's Again, it's just very individualized. Speaking of grief and things like that, the holidays are coming up. And so we understand that during the holidays, that's a, a really hard time for families because, you know, my loved one may not be here. What are we going to do? It's going to be so different. What kinds of things can we do to help get through the holidays? We have a program in fall that's coming up. Leanne can tell you the dates and the times. It's Holiday Hope. It's a program that gives some guidance to families and loved ones. Here's some things that we can do to get through this holiday because it is going to be different and it's going to be hard. What kinds of rituals can we start now to honor our loved one or remember our loved one during these holidays and get through the holidays? Because grief comes, like you said, you know, it comes and it goes and has you know, sometimes you're angry, sometimes you're sad, sometimes you're mad, and you're going to go through those stages over and over and over again. Just having somebody there that understands that and can help give some guidance through the holidays. So that's what our holiday hope programs do. We try to do these throughout our service area. We have 10 counties out of the hazard office that we serve. We have three locations of where families, friends, loved ones can come and get some support and guidance on how to do the holiday now. Yeah, I would like to just add to that. I've been with hospice for uh, two years, so I've gotten to attend one of our holiday hope sessions, and I really didn't know what to expect last year when I got to attend one, and it was the most sweetest, kindest, thing that I believe that we could have put together during the holidays if you attend you're going to leave feeling better I think people shared stories and just really had a lot of support we have a great turnout as well our staff was there and it's a really special thing to come to and if you want to come this doesn't have to be a hospice family that comes anyone is invited it's open to the public we have three locations Thursday November 17th at 6 p.m. this will be held at the Wolf County Library and again that's on a Thursday November 17th 
Thursday, December 1st at 6 p.m. This will be located at our Hospice of the Bluegrass office. The address is 2214 South Mayo Trail. I wanted to put that out there because our office location has changed in the Pike County area. Again, that's December 1st for Pikeville. And Thursday, December 8th at 6 p.m. at the Hospice of the Bluegrass Administration office in Hazard. And again, that's December 8th at 6 p.m. In, in Hazard. And I would like to invite anyone who wanted to come to, to please attend. You will walk away from a very special experience. Great. Thank you for offering that. And I want to let our listeners know that we will be putting this program online for you to be able to listen to at any time. So we will also have those dates and times listed under the player that will allow you to see the dates and times and play the program if you want to hear any part of it again. And all the information that we've talked about today, plus much, much, much more, is on our website. If somebody wants more information, you can always go to hospicebg.org, and there's an abundance of information, calendars, how to get a referral, what's the admission criteria, lots and lots of different tools and tips and things on there, our locations. If you have questions, you can go and look that up. We also have a referral number, an, a, an information line uh, for anybody that, that wants more information, has a question, wants to make a referral. There's a toll-free number. It's 855-492-0812. You know, again, please call our ladies, who answer, ladies and gentlemen who answer the phone over there at the information center can get you to where you need to be as far as whatever your questions are. They're very knowledgeable about what you may need. Even if you don't know what you may need, they can probably guide you in the right direction. So any questions or questions, concerns, things that you have, please call that number, 855-492-0812. The number is also listed on our website. I know you probably don't have a pen to jot it down, but if you go to our website, you can pull the number off and, and give us a call. So we're coming close to the end of our program, and Linda had been telling me about a really interesting project that they began in Hazard earlier and it reminded me of a bucket list. They're working on the before I die wall. So this could in my mind be a way to start these types of conversations we were just talking about on a lighter note as well as get real serious with it. So could you tell me a little bit about the Before I Die wall and what the objective is there? So the origin of the Before I Die wall, an artist by the name of Candy Chang, when she experienced the loss of a loved one, she was suffering with severe, deep depression. She was very introverted, and so she was trying to figure out how can I help myself and help others. So there was an abandoned house in her neighborhood and she got permission to paint the wall. And what she did, she stenciled on, before I die, I want to, with blanks, so people could write their messages in there. It was an experiment. She didn't know what was going to happen with this. But as she started posting pictures online and people started seeing this, she got an overwhelming response of, where can I get this information? Can I do this in my own area? So it just kind of sprang out of her grief and her need to have a way to express some things that she wanted to do. And it's become nationwide, nationwide you know, all over the country. There, mm -hmm. There's people that are putting these walls up. It's a chalkboard wall. It's a 
paint it with chalk and people can come by and grab a piece of chalk and you know before I die I want to swim with the dolphins or whatever it may be that I want to do you know I want to I may want to go to the Grand Canyon or those types of things and so it was really started as an experiment with her but it's just taken off and it is a way to start those conversations you know yeah. this may be the key to start some of those conversations hey do you know that I went down and did you know what I put on the wall and so you know that could be a spark mm -hmm. for people to mm -hmm. say let's talk about things that I want to do or things that I want to happen in my life or how I want to be you know maybe I don't want to be on the ventilator so I think it'll open up some of those doors for for conversations in families mm -hmm. interesting enough i was in and we've actually put these walls up all over kentucky our service areas we serve 32 counties so i was in frankfurt over the weekend and i'm walking down um the street with one of my friends on a little sidewalk and i see chalkboards all along the side of a, a fence and i said oh this is so cool we've put these up and then there was our logo hospice of the bluegrass so i got to sign our wall in frankfurt and um with one of my friends and she signed it and people kind of came around us they all started signing it they expressed great gratitude for us placing the walls up and it was filled from top to bottom so we're excited to to have this project so we're working hard to try to have a location in Whitesburg that we can do one of these walls. And where is the location in Hazard for our listeners in the Hazard area? The location in Hazard is the arts community has allowed us to use their front wall. It is directly across from First Federal on Main Street. So you cannot miss the gigantic front windows painted chalkboard black. They were actually getting ready to do the stencil when I left to come here so that wall should be finished by end of day and people were already you could see the interest being garnered already just by people seeing that something new was happening in their community so we're excited yeah so if you're in Whitesburg <laughs> and, and you would like to uh, allow us the opportunity to partner with you on this please give us a call we'd love to work with you and let this be a part of the Letcher County community or volunteer to help we're always looking for volunteers <laughs> just have to throw that in there yeah, <laughs> that, that is a very important thing and, and a good opportunity really for anyone I know my great-grandmother did some volunteering in that way in her later years, and it really gave as much back to her as she put out, for sure. And I have to say, my grandmother did skydive before she passed away. Wow. wow. I'm so proud of her. But uh, she was a younger woman. She was probably about my age when she did it. My grandfather was a paratrooper, and they went on a thing together and and both jumped oh, wow. so but she actually jumped alone with her own parachute and i've got pictures wow. so i feel really oh, I blessed to have that so <laughs> that's really neat so that. so maybe hers would have been parrot to you know <laughs> jump out of plane twice <laughs> who, knows? who knows i think she really did most of what she wanted to do and that really was a gift to me too seeing somebody who just went out and did was a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Go for it. If yeah. you want to do it, go for it. Go for <laughs> it. Well, I appreciate all of you being here today. Everyone who was here today is with Hospice of the Bluegrass, so I want to thank Linda, Monica, and Leanne for joining us on Mountain Talk, and we are coming to the close of the show. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we end our program today? 
Well, I would like to add that, um, you know, as the holidays are approaching, we talked a little bit about grief and dealing with that through the holidays, but for our patients who are, or not our patients, but for people who are out there with the holidays approaching, maybe they are having some signs and symptoms, maybe they have a serious illness, they're struggling to stay home, they're in and out of the hospital, please keep us in mind. Give us a call. Maybe we can help. Maybe we can offer some support in your home and help you stay home during the holidays, which is where you want to be. You want to be at home in the holidays, not in the hospital or, you know, in and out of facilities. Maybe it's a situation where Hospice of the Bluegrass can come in and help you and, and keep you home during the holidays. Well, and also one of the things that we didn't point out we're talking about hospice services today but hospice of the bluegrass we have a lot of services that we can provide that are not hospice services of if you're sick if you have some needs call us if we can't help you in one of our programs then maybe we can direct you to who who exactly. can help you mm -hmm. so we want to we want to help you navigate through the healthcare system we want to help you be able to get to where you need to and we have a lot of programs that from our transitional care program which is helping its cats to help keep people when people have been in the hospital to help keep people home so that they don't have a readmission to the hospital. We have private duty nursing services. We just have an abundance of things that we can help with that's not necessarily hospice. Mm -hmm. So reach out to us, even though our name says hospice, we, there's a lot of programs that we have that are prior to hospice that we could probably help you with. And if And again, if we can't, we'll try to direct you somewhere else where you can get what you need. I think a good thing to remember is that you folks are assessing this type of thing all the time and not everyone who comes into care passes at that point. Absolutely. So you're mm -hmm. helping the family navigate decisions all mm -hmm. the time, mm -hmm. which is a tremendous resource. And so for more information, just remember our website, hospicebg.org. All the information's there. All of our contact numbers are there. Please give us a call and hopefully we can help you. Thank you very much for being on the program today. This was Mountain Talk Monday, and for all our listeners out there, thanks for listening. Have a good evening.